Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, let's officially start this off tonight. Uh, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming to Wednesday Night Networking. I'm really excited about uh, having our guest speaker tonight, Kevin Elmy. Uh, we're gonna kind of have a topic of uh, cover crops. I think it was at uh, uh, Crazy Cover Crop Concoctions by Kevin, something like that. So uh, uh, just a little bit of an intro, I guess. Um, we first started this program because our um, conference season has been kind of canceled because of COVID. And uh, one of the things that I saw was really missing was the networking involved with the conferences. So uh, I, I could do a couple of seminars and conferences here, and I don't know who I'm talking to. There's no face on the other end. There's a bunch of blank screens. I never really get any questions asked to me. And, uh, you know, it was very impersonal. So I said, what we're missing is the networking because over the last 20 years, I've got a lot of education from conferences, but half of that education comes from talking with producers after. So we decided to do just a networking, right? There's no presentations here. We're just going to talk, uh, chit chat and have a conversation. We just pick a different topic and get a different guest speaker every Wednesday. And it's gone really well. Like I can't believe how many people we get showing up for these now. And I'm, I'm so happy with that. And the, the reports back we're getting, like we're already hearing from people that they've made a connection and they've got a new intern coming next year. They got, you know, they touched base with somebody and they got some great ideas out of it. And so that's exactly what this is supposed to be for. Um, so pretend that you're sitting at a table at a conference and right now you have 118 people sitting at your table and you can talk to any one of them. You can listen in on the conversations and so you can make comments in chat. You can make direct comments to everybody or you can make direct comments to individual people, right? You can private chat with somebody and nobody else can see it. So if there's a comment or a question, somebody that you're in, you know, uh, their, their comment was interesting or you, you had a, a, maybe an answer for them, by all means, private message them, right? I don't think anybody's going to get offended. Um, that's what this is for. So we got to, that many people sitting at the table, just treat it like that. Um, not a big deal. We have a couple of sponsors of this night. Uh, I guess obviously Greener Pastures is a sponsor. We came up with this idea and um, I'm not uh, taking any fees for this. That's free. I just, I can't imagine uh, a winter without the networking. So we want to make sure this is free for everybody. So uh, we had a comment from some people. They were all concerned that they didn't know where they got the link from, like a friend sent it to them. And don't worry, you're not stealing the link, right? It's free. Anybody can have it. We don't care where you got the link from. You, you're more than welcome to have it. So don't be nervous or, you know, tempted. If you want to send it to your neighbor, that's fine. So, yeah, I guess we're one of the sponsors. Uh, our benefit out of this, I guess, is we get uh, some extra consulting out of it. I do economic one-on-one uh, -on -one webinars, cash flows grazing charts, whatever. And uh, if anybody wants that after, by all means, message me. Amber does some video production. She's uh, my video nerd. So if anybody needs some commercials made, she's good at that as well. And the other, our major sponsor, I guess, is the Gateway Research Organization. It's a uh, not-for-profit organization in our area. I've been a part of Grow for probably 20 some years and they do extension events and research and the knowledge that I've got from them over the years has been fantastic. Um, if, so other provinces and other states have similar type organizations. Um, they do, you know, little research experiments. They make the mistakes. So, you know, maybe we don't make, make as many mistakes. Um, so big thank you to Grow for being the sponsor here tonight. So our special guest tonight is uh, Kevin Elmy. He's to me, he's my, uh, 
my cover crop nerd. If I ever need a question about cover crops, he's the guy I go to. And he's been doing this for quite some time. And uh, we're just going to chit chat into it. So Kevin, if you want to come on and quickly introduce yourself and give us a little, you know, two, two minute rundown on what cover crops is and what, what you think of them. Kevin, you're on. Alrighty. So we started uh, playing around with, you know, looking at, at uh, changing diversity. Well, I guess maybe take a step back. I moved back to the farm. Uh, we were in, in uh, working with the Seacan Association and based out of Red Deer uh, up until 1999. We moved back to the farm. Some land came up for sale and, and uh, I had some you know got got my hands dirty so we went out there and and very conventional farm at the time and so we went into this field and we were going to pre-work before we we seeded normal and it's a sandy loam is what what uh, the the first field was and we had problems getting our our cultivator into the ground it was rock hard and when you look at the history of the field the the previous owner he would grow wheat bale the straw burn the stubble then you'd grow barley bale the straw burn the stubble and then just to top it off you'd black summer fall out. and so there was you know no organic matter no life in it it was i bought dirt is what it was so i figured that things had to change so we decided to you know get into winter wheat have short-term uh, hay in rotation uh, got into corn grazing a lot of the things of the five principles of soil health. So in, in 2005, we heard about these radishes in the States. So uh, did a little bit of research on it and got a hold of Steve Groff. So he's, uh, he's my drug dealer that got me started into cover crops. And from, uh, from the, we put the tillage radish, then the next year we went radish and oats. The next year was uh, crown millet, uh, crimson clover and and radish and now we i like being in that uh, you know once again depending on what my goals are i like being between eight and 12 species in my mixes we're finding the more diversity we have the better things are happening in the soil and then in 2008 i do believe uh, we decided that you know the the canadian cover crop market wasn't being addressed properly so we started up cover crop canada and uh got together uh with uh with green cover seeds uh, and so got to to uh never did meet mr burns yet but one of these days we will but talked to him lots on the phone learned a lot from him and you know it opened up the door for even more diversity and so ever since then you know it's just keep adding more and more of these functional plant groups and you know diversity is one thing but we need these functional plant groups that's one of the keys that we will be talking about i'm assuming tonight excellent Thank you very much. Uh, real quick version of cover crops for me. Um, a lot of people in the past have asked, asked me why I don't like cover crops. And uh, that's not true. I do. Uh, but I've come across a little bit of a, a stickling point, I guess. Um, I think cover crops are a huge step forward in a cropping situation, right? In, in a grain land, adding that to that grain land, those cover crops are so important in improving that soil and, and building the, the biodiversity and the building that up. But, you know, for me as a perennial pasture guy, right? To rip out my, my pastures and turn it into a cover crop, that's a huge step backwards. Okay? Um, nothing builds soil faster than a 
perennial polyculture. So um, that's the, why people think I, I don't like cover crops. But from a crop side, I mean, cover crops are a great tool. It's a, a, a huge step forward from your typical monoculture uh, cropping situation. So the reason I do cover crops is actually to establish pasture. And uh, by the way, Kevin, we're allowed to disagree here. If there's something you disagree <laughs> with me about, perfectly fine. Okay. Um, uh, but for me, I'm trying to establish a perennial pasture. And in the back of my mind, I always think, well, you know, my perennial is going to fix anything wrong in the soil later anyway. Um, so I'm not near as fussy about what species I put in, but I want a polyculture of plants that gives me a polyculture of root systems. So different types of root systems. And that gets me a polyculture of soil biology, right? Bacteria, fungus, you know, nematodes, earthworms, all sorts of beetles uh, and insects. So I want that polyculture to to, to develop that. Once I get that polyculture of soil organisms, then I start getting free fertility. Okay, they start bringing nutrients to my plants and there's this whole symbiotic relationship down there that you don't get from a monoculture. Um, so I never use any fertilizers. I just try and get as many different types of root systems. So types of root systems could be uh, perennial versus annual, right? Those are different types of root systems. Uh, broadleaf versus grasses, uh, bunch grass versus creeping grass. You, you can have a creeping uh, legume or you could have a taprooted legume. Um, you can have uh, C4 plants and C3 plants. So warm season, cool season. Um, if we get them different types of root systems in there, then that triggers different exudates, the sugars being pushed out through the root systems, which feed different types of organisms. And that's what I'm trying to get is that huge, huge uh, complex system of, of biodiversity in the soil. So that's my quick and dirty of it. And the, the, that caveat on the bottom of that is properly managed grazing. Yep. Because exactly. you can have the diversity and you abuse it. Now you've, you've gone backwards and that's where, you know, the, the whole idea, if you listen to to Clayton Robbins and he, his, his vantage of using the cover crops in a, in a, a livestock operation is having that sacrificial lamb to graze through those critical periods of August, September, October to allow your perennials to properly be set up for winter and you can get the best bang for the buck for those uh, the grazing or, or harvesting those those cover crops in those months because now we're going to drive that that sugar to protein ratio in the room in two to one. So it, it's just another tool. Which one's right? Which one, you know, we have to work on your system. And I, you know, that's one thing that, that I'm a, a big one on that, you know, cover crops is going to save the world. Absolutely not. It's another tool to help save the world. And to add, add into that, the uh, livestock, because there's symbiotic relations be between the biology of the, the ruminant animal and the biology in the soil. Right. I mean, cover crops alone are, don't do it near as quickly as if you get that animal integration as well and get some animals out there and grazing on that land. Um, there's biology in the manure, there's biology in the urine, biology in the saliva and the snot that drips out of their nose even. Uh, biology off their hair coats. And all of this interacts with the soil biology, either it's biology added or food for biology. Um, and we need these interactions between the plants and the, and the animals and the soil organisms. And, and that's where we come into this with the polyculture and that's what triggers it. So um, Amber, 
you want to yeah. start us off with some questions? We have a lot of questions already, guys. So I hope you're ready for this. Kevin, you're going to be on your game. <laughs> okay, I got my thinking toque on. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> you need more than just one toque right now with the temperatures outside. <laughs> so, um, Holly, are you ready to go? And I'm sorry, I didn't send out a message letting you know that you were up next. But if you want to unmute your mic and turn on your video, ask your question. Actually, I think I saw Holly's question earlier. I really liked it because that's the question I want to ask to Kevin too. <laughs> okay. So we are farming in North central Montana and um, we, our problem with cover crops is that we have a labor issue. So we don't want to have to be planting a cover crop every fall and a cash crop every spring. So what we're looking for is a perennial cover crop that we can plant that is going to be short enough and diverse enough that we can cut a barley or a wheat and not have to clean the, the seed later on because the cover crop, you know, made, the, made it dirty and everything. So we can just go right over top of the cover crop. So do you have any suggestions for that? And, you know, the warm and cold, obviously the mixture of that as well. Okay. Are you dry land or irrigation? We have some both. Okay. Um, what kind of texture, uh, soil texture are you dealing with? Sand, uh, loam, clay? No, it's, it's more loam, um, like a clay loam. Okay. So now what is your goal of having this cover crop in your stand? So we want to make sure that our soil is covered all winter and be able to graze it okay. um, after we pull the cash crop off. Okay. Are you conventional or are you uh, organic? Or conventional. Conventional. Okay. So, you know, I need all of that information because to just come up with that knee-jerk reaction, you know, it's it, it's not going to serve either one of us any good. So right. that okay. So we want to get it to livestock integration. We want to have that diversity, and, and this is where under cash cropping it gets really tricky because when you look at at the biology of a plant. A plant is either going to creep and and kind of <laughs> spread that way, or it's going to produce seed. And this is the challenge. I know uh, uh, Elaine Ingham, she talks about, uh, you know, we're crazy buying seed every year. We should just use perennials. Uh, unless Keith has a, a magic uh, plant that uh, overwinters, does not go to seed and doesn't creep, uh, I haven't found it. And so that's where the challenges are. So to use, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, white Dutch clover. White Dutch clover is a, a low growing plant. It will go to seed, it will creep somewhat, but it's gonna stay nice and low to the ground and, and, and check off a lot of those boxes that you're looking for. Then when you have them in with peas, now is having that legume with the legume, is that gonna cause issues or, or you know, what, what potential problems are going to come up from there. Um, so, you know, the, the white Dutch clover as a long-term perennial, it stays nice and low. Perfect. Uh, then to get into some of the, the, the grasses with when, if we look at something like the, uh, uh, some of the hard fescue, sheep fescue, uh, chewing fescues, those are nice low growing plants that uh, once again, don't take a lot of nutrients, kind of stay on the bottom, kind of bunch up. They have some potential. Then when you get into the forbs, 
you know, using something like plantain. I like plantain because it, it uh, once again, low growing, accumulates lots of sugar and in, in, going into the fall, um, stays relatively low. It's going to kind of interfere with your peas. But, um, you know, those are some of the ways we can look at getting into these. Not the perfect answer, but when we're dealing with a perennial cover crop in cash cropping and we're growing some crops that we're going to be shaving the ground, it gets a little tricky. Okay. It gets a lot tricky. So, so, uh, a great question. Uh, I think that's going to be something, you know, the, look for these, oh, I don't want to say turf types because if we're going to get, if we're going to go on and graze them, we're going to have to worry about endophytes. So if we use some of these low growing, lower growing, uh, plants, those are the ones that I would be kind of keying in on. And, you know, you may have to go in every once in a while and, and use some chemical to knock those back because the white Dutch clover, once again, when you look at the number of seeds per pound, uh, one pound of white Dutch clover will give about uh, like 12 seeds per square foot. You don't want it that thick. You just want to have that, that being represented in there. So, you know, a couple of seeds per square foot is all you really need. So it may get too thick. You may have to start knocking it back a little so bit. Would you recommend like a vetch? Uh, like a, a sicer milk vetch or hairy vetch? Yeah, we have, we can grow hairy vetch up here. Of course, you know, conventional farmers think that it's a horrible weed. And so do we until this year. So, <laughs> um, but you know, if, if we're going to plant a cover crop, a perennial cover crop into these fields, don't you kind of want more of a, a bit bigger variety? Or do you just try to find, you know, a few of these grasses and yeah. As a perennial, uh, I think you want to keep it relatively simple because when you have your, your cash crop getting your, your crop cash crop rotation, getting more diverse, uh, that's going to cause some, some uh, challenges for your, for your production. And that's where using hairy vetch, you know, hairy vetch I, I view as either being an annual or a winter annual. Uh, it can switch back and forth. And, uh, you know, as, as long as you're you're managing it grazing wise and you're not dealing with a lot of seed production in the plant, uh, it's perfectly fine. But then when you want to try and reduce it, uh, there's there's some uh, some management uh, issues with it because the the, the the hairy vetch, common vetch, both are naturally re uh, resistant to glyphosate, glufosinate in your group twos. So there are some uh, some challenges if it does get ahead of you <laughs> of, of, of trying to put the brakes on it. There's a chemical called voucher that will actually control vetch. Um, so just knowing that, I mean, as long as we know that going into it, if we do plant the vetch, then we'll have to do something with some herbicide. So yeah, so in your peas, you're going to have an issue with vetch um, because you won't be able to easily control it uh, in in crop. So I'll add to that about the, the white clover yes. specifically. Um, we, there was a study at the Edmonton conference a few years ago, a fella came on and they talked about the differences between the clovers. Um, white clover is a lot lower growing, so that would definitely fit in your, your mix there better. Uh, Alcyc and red get a lot taller, so you don't want, really want to use them in there. And also the white clover itself, in the year of growing, it actually is a net giver of nitrogen to the soil, so to the other plants around it. Whereas alcyc and red clover will actually take nitrogen. So they use up more nitrogen than they produce. Whereas white clover will, uh, because it's low growing, but it still produces 
a surplus of nitrogen that will give to your your crop. So yeah, I definitely would include white clover in in any uh, understory for a cover crop. And plantain, I, I really love the plantain. When we put it in there, it did well and stayed nice and low to the ground. So so the next one's for from George Thomas. He doesn't have a mic or video, so I'll be reading it out. And I hope I get this right, George. If I don't, please send me a message. So closing out some very old alfalfa went down 24 inches with ripper every eight feet or so. Plans are to plant oats and barley for hay. We'll do again next year to clean up the weeds. Need to grow grass for equine hay. And that's what the end plans are. And he added on, uh, he's in dry land, not much water, usually spring, um, and cut hay, cuts hay around July 1st. And he does have a real rocky field that has been growing turnips and radishes in the last two years. So I think he's looking for suggestions. I guess my, my first thought on that would be that, uh, if your soil's getting, you know, if you need to rip it and open it up, um, I don't think a piece of equipment can do that. Uh, we need root systems, long fibrous root systems, some tap roots to get down in there and to break it up. Um, for me, it would be a combination of that polyculture root systems that's going to heal your soil uh, much quicker than any piece of equipment can. So uh, as for species, I'll let Kevin, uh, Kevin talk to that one. One of the things that uh, as you listen to, to a lot of these speakers, when we are going to be going in, and I think but Nicole Master said it, uh, any, any sin you do against the soil, make two reparations. So if you're going to go in and do a deep rip, when you're doing that deep rip, what else are you doing? And actually, Patrick Fabian, he, uh, he did a trial at, uh, at Tilly, Alberta. And uh, because slow organic matter, he had a hard pan, so he went in with the deep ripper. So he, his, his son was, uh, was running, running the tractor and he would do a couple passes with a deep ripper. And then you do a couple passes where you put down some emulsified fish and some humates. And then he would turn it off after a couple of passes. Uh, Dr. Zavala from the Chinook Applied Research Association went to that field and was walking across it. And all of a sudden she would stop and she'd take little baby steps back. And she pointed to the line in the field and she said, what did you do different on this side versus that side? And Patrick's son started laughing and he said, that's exactly where they turned the emulsified fish and the humates off. So that when you have, you know, when you do this deep ripping, so you're going into alfalfa field, so your fungal to bacteria ratio is, is uh, up in the, you know, close to one to one. So, you know, well over, 0.5. When we start deep ripping, that's going to destroy your, your mycorrhizae fungi, your fungi hyphae. And so that will really drop your, your fungal to bacteria ratio. When we start having bacterial dominated soils, they will collapse on themselves if we don't do something about it. And so with Patrick's field, so where they put the emulsified fish and the humates, that soil was nice and crumbly. Where he didn't, it was like cement. So when he did the deep ripping with that amendment, that helped that system maintain itself. Now, the next thing he, he should have done is put down a taproot right behind that at probably at the same time. So putting down some chicory, some radish, some oats, some so get those roots in there to get that rebar in there to create that soil structure. And this is where, you know, uh, when you're seeding, uh, I think oats was being used for that uh, equine hay. Is that correct? I think so. So when you're seeding the oats, 
to help add that diversity, throw in a little bit of Italian ryegrass, just so we have that vegetative plant, that plant in the vegetative stage growing throughout that whole growing season to keep pumping down these root exudates into that soil. Because when the plant is in the, the, the vegetative stage, it releases up to 80% of the carbonic catchers through photosynthesis into the soil to feed that biology. When you have active biology, you're building active soil structure. You have active soil structure, now you're fixing the system. Now you're going to get productivity. Yeah, the root systems and the and the bacteria together. Um, I, I remember an alfalfa field we had. Uh, honestly, uh, I used to think that alfalfa roots, I, that big tap root going down, is going to you know fix all the soil. But you get too much of one type of root in there too, it it causes issues. Um, we had this alfalfa field that I went around and I was digging holes all over my pasture for a pasture walk we had, and uh, you know my backhoe was doing fine, and I got to that probably 80% alfalfa field. And it was like trying to dig in concrete, right? Like I, I had trouble digging down uh, to get down six feet in, with the hoe. And uh, it was just rock hard. And it was just because we've got that one type of root and we're, we don't have the diversity of, of biology down there. Um, uh, I think Gabe Brown even said there a couple of weeks ago on here that he was, it, you need that big, deep, you know, fibrous root system to dig down there along with the tap roots to, to really open up, get through the, the pore space in there too, to open it up. So um, compacted soil. Yeah. A polyculture root systems is what's going to fix that. And, and the, obviously the biology to go along with that. Exactly. When, when we have this system and, and, you know, when we have this alfalfa, okay. So alfalfa is good um, to have the grasses better, but one of the things Dr. Jones, Dr. Christine Jones talks about is in the world, the average pasture in the world is 60% forb and 40% grass. When I heard that, I was driving home from Brandon, I, it, it two hour drive. So I got to think about it for a little bit. And I'm thinking when we have legumes in one of these mixes, and we can start out at, you know, I've been selling forage seed for 20 some years. And when people come up and they say, okay, yeah, I need a forage blend. I, I want a hay stand. And you ask them, so what kind of stand are you looking for? Well, you know, I usually start with a blend that starts out with lots of alfalfa and then none. Okay. So in, in the, the successional plants, most of these legumes we're growing are early successional plants. So they're not going to be in these stands for a long period of time because once we have healthy soils, now we have natural end fixtures in the, in the soil, replacing the job for these legumes. When we look yeah. at animals, when they're grazing, do they like grazing straight alfalfa? Absolutely not. They want grass. Grass is the, the, the that gives us a tons. That's what feeds the belly. That's what gets their sugars into these plant or into these these animals. And you always have to remember the rumen and the soil are so so similar. George made the comment that he doesn't want any alfalfa. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> for for horses, absolutely. But that's where you know throwing in once again. So if you if you're looking at using oats as your as your grass for your equine hay. White Dutch clover, it grows underneath the canopy. So when you cut it, it's not going to get into that hay, but you still have that end fixer for that, for that oat crop. So it's not always, you know, with these cover crops, you know, there's so many definitions of what a, a cover crop is. And in this case, you know, what's your goal? If your goal is, okay, you want to grow uh, oats for equine hay, and you can't have legumes in it, let's grow a legume that's going to be under the cutting bar. 
So now we still have that diversity. We have the infixation. Now we have more a, a more natural system. I think that's a good point for really any type of, of the problems that we encounter as producers um, to keep that end goal in mind and, and to really fine tune it down to that end goal and make sure that, you know, you keep that diversity while keeping that goal in mind. And I think it's easy to either lose that, that diversity of thinking or to lose the goal. And you, you kind of have to keep both. Um, the next, the next one that we have up is from Rob and Cheyenne Younger, and they asked that I ask the question, um, what references books or websites would you say would be the best for info on getting started in East central Alberta? Oh, can I answer that one, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> There's a book out, uh, the author's, uh, Kevin Elmy. <laughs> I'm blushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Tell them about your book. I wrote a book. <laughs> uh, actually, I was pointing out there's there's two errors in it already. There's uh, one spelling error, and then under Harry Vetch, um, I have the the seeds per square foot per pound of seed. Uh, I messed up that calculation. So, uh, but basically, what I've done it, it's an introductory book is is what I call it. And, you know, there's nothing specific on it because there's so many variations of what can be done, uh, you know, once again, setting goals. And so, uh, there, you know, there's just one short chapter on, on setting goals. Um, but basically, it, you know, just to give a quick reference of, of, you know, where to start setting goals. Uh, and then there's uh, the, the biggest part of the book is uh, variety descriptions or species descriptions. So this way it tells you, you know, where they fit, how they fit, uh, the number of the average seeds per pound, and then the number of seeds per square foot per pound of seed that you seed. Anybody follow that one? That it, does get confusing it, in cover crops because all the seed sizes are different, right? You, you're trying to seed so many pounds per acre, but, you know, seeding oats and sunflowers and uh, barley is way different than seed and white clover and, and uh, alfalfa. Exactly. And so what, when, when, when we develop these, these mixes, we want to be able to have proper representation of species. So if we're going to be grazing and we go in and we put too many brassicas, those animals, yeah, they're going to eat it well, but they're not going to metabolically do well. We don't have a proper distribution of, of species in that mix. It's really important to break it down to, to have a quick visual before we actually develop it, that blend, to, to know what, what the end results may look like. And, you know, once again, Keith Burns, this is all his fault for bringing all this diversity in. So next up, we have Brenda. Go for it, Brenda. <laughs> well, it's a pretty simple question, but it's an important one to me. Is um, when you're choosing species for your cover crop, have you ever chosen a species that you wish you had never seen? Um, I know some are awfully invasive and they're really hard to get rid of. Um, so I, I'll open that up to both of you, please. Thanks. I haven't found one yet. What about you, Kevin? Uh, there's there's ones you have to watch for management and that's you know Harry Vetch is the one that I, I warn people when they're cash cropping uh, because if you have and once again there's there are ways to uh, to spray it out or or manage it so it's not a problem but with Harry Vetch it has 30% hard seeds which means it'll it'll grow over the next three years that natural resistant to glyphosate glufosinate in group twos can get tricky when you're growing canola or peas 
Um, you know, that's one that I warn people about. Um, there's uh, last last year we had the one varietal mix of Italian ryegrass, and we found under wet conditions one of the varieties threw up a seed head. Did it cause issues? Yeah, it didn't look good, but I don't think it hurt anything. Uh, besides that, one of the things that I do is, and, and Keith can attest to this, the, the first couple of years when he was shipping seed up to me, everything that he shipped me, I seeded. And I put it in, and being as a seed grower, I don't like to have issues rotation-wise because of the fact that a seed grower, you know, I'm going to have people walking through my field inspecting it <laughs> and then I'm going to have to deal with the consequences if I do have contamination. So, so I was very cognizant of the species that are, that we are bringing in uh, right now. The, uh, we we're working with Imperial seeds out of Winnipeg and they have a on lab on, on site seed lab. So every lot that comes in gets tested before it gets unloaded. So we make sure that number one, you know, we're, we're growing these varieties to make sure there's, there's no issues growing it. Number two, they're getting tested to make sure there's no impurities in there. That's, that's going to cause any issues. See, and I'm a perennial guy, so there's no such thing as a weed. <laughs> they come in, we graze them out. It's done. We're, we're good. Steve, can I send you a crop of comfrey and you want to try that for a little while? Sure. Sure. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> the weed inspectors hate us. <laughs> Only but for a little while. But it's never actually, it doesn't overtake any of our pastures. So I'll leave it at that. But yeah, they, they, they get on our case sometimes. If I um, take over a field, like lots of times, there'll be a bunch of what people call weeds come up, right? But we go out there and we graze it. We use our grazing concepts. We knock them down. We, um, within a couple of years, they're, they're gone. Uh, I shouldn't say gone They're They don't take over, right? Uh, I want some weeds out in, in my field because that's a uh, biodiversity. It's a polyculture. Um, if, if one species is taking over an area, then there's something out of balance and we need to rebalance the system. So I'm okay with a couple of buttercups and a couple of thistles. I took a, a picture of a, a, a great big bull thistle the other uh, last year, beautiful looking plant. It was three of them in the whole pasture but I just was so impressed at how powerful that plant looked, but it wasn't taking over the system, right? It's just one plant in the middle. It, it's got a purpose there. Weeds are a symptom of what's happening in the soil. And the other book that I highly recommend to get uh, through Acres USA is When Weeds Talk by J.L. McCammon. Wonderful resource because it, those weeds are just early successional plants that are trying to fix the soil. And so, you know, they're, they have an ecological advantage of why they're growing. And in a lot of cases, when you have thistles in, in pastures, how many thistles do you have in your, in your pasture, Steve? Uh, it depends on the pasture, but there's, there's some areas that have more and some areas that have less, yeah. but not, not much. Exactly. Cause they, you know, you're fixing it with the rest of the plants. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some really good stuff. Uh, I, I, another book just jumped into my head that I'm just starting to read it now. Uh, Going back to the, the book question, uh, you can tell mind is all over the place. Uh, farm as a, as, has a farm as eco, ecosystem. Uh, wonderful book so far. 
Cool. Uh, mycorrhizal plant is the other one that I love. So I, I think that that's a really good point. And for anybody here, and I mean, I know a lot of you probably know that that's probably one of the reasons you're here, but keep on learning. Don't, don't oh. let it stop. Right. Um, even the experts keep on learning. So um, the next one's from Brian English. Brian, if you want to go ahead. She just called you an expert, Kevin. <laughs> oh no, he's talking about someone else. Good for you. <laughs> you're an expert that's why you're here x is a has been and a spurt is a drip under pressure so (laughs) i can you hear me i was wondering about meadow foxtail in wet areas they like to take over what do you think of that Meadow foxtail used to be uh, in the 70s. They pushed that as a, you know, you're supposed to seed that in your pastures. And now everybody's uh, mad that it's taken over their pastures. Isn't that the one that the Gateway Research Organization has a, a big issue with? That's exactly right. And that's what I mean. Is that just a symptom? Or how do you actually get, because it matured too early and the cattle don't like to eat it then. That's part of the problem. It's hard to manage. So I feel uh, really awkward trying to answer a question from you, uh, Ula, because you're the person I usually come ask these questions to. <laughs> She's one of my experts. So um, to me, it's just a matter of the the grazing rotation. You get it set in there and whatever's going to take over is going to, uh, you know, we're, we're going to balance out the system. If there's too much of one thing, then um, we can introduce new seeds. But once my pasture is established and growing good, I don't really worry which which plants are coming up uh, as long as they're producing well so um kevin you got an answer to the meadow foxtail uh, was it meadow foxtail or creeping foxtail because creeping foxtail it was it was pushed a few years ago the meadow foxtail is a softer leaf so it should be a lot more palatable the creeping foxtail it's uh it, it's aggressive it it is probably the creeping foxtail. it's the one with the white seeds instead of the black seeds and really, really small seeds? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just basically you'd be playing around with the uh, time of grazing and, and how that, that plant responds to that grazing. And, you know, is it stocking rates? Is it, uh, and, you know, the one of the things, once again, going back to the fungal bacteria ratios, when that fungal bacteria ratio changes, so your species compositions. And this is where, like, with Steve with his pastures where you know you'll see some weeds early on that tells me that you're you're below a 0.3 fungal bacteria ratio as that soil and that ecosystem starts to mature that fungal bacteria ratio starts increasing and this is where people will say that you know size mug fetch you know the first year you don't see it in the second year maybe you'll see it and then I'll start showing up and that's because we're seeding it into a 0.2 a 0.2 fungal bacteria ratio soil, it doesn't want to grow there. It wants to grow to 0.5. So because we don't do tillage, because we're grazing, we're allowing that fungal population to, to strengthen, it starts to show up. So if we had a pasture and we seeded Sicer into it, it would, it would establish way quicker because it has the signal to grow. Beautiful stuff. Nicole Masters, uh, she, she was one of our guests here a while back. And one of the things I've learned from her over the past little while is that if you're, you're trying to balance that fungal to, to bacteria ratio, if you want to get more fun, fungus in your soil is you trample in dead plant material. If you want to get more bacteria into your soil, then you trample in green uh, material. 
So uh, if usually we're, we're short of, of the, the fungal side. So making sure that we're trampling in dead uh, grass material is, is more important to increase that fungus. So uh, something to think about there too, if you're trying to balance those two out. And using species that are, uh, especially on the mycorrhizal side, mycorrhizal friendly. So your brassicas are non-mycorrhizal, uh, your legumes are highly mycorrhizal, minus lupins. So Brian English got kicked off there, I think. He's been trying to get back on. I'm going to read out his question because at least then he can go back to the podcast and, and hear the answer to it. Oh, he's back. Are you good, Brian? Yeah, I'm back on. I guess I should have plugged in quicker. <laughs> go for it. Okay, uh, for the first couple of years when we started polycropping, we tried crimson clover and didn't get any emergence hardly at all. And um, so now that we've got a couple of years, or four or five years of polycropping and grazing, um, will that help increase our chances of the crimson clover growing? And Kevin, we talked about that slightly, but I'm just not clear on that yet. Uh, I, in uh, That was Teeming with Bacteria book, another one of the books I like. Um, there was one sentence in that whole book that said, if you have high amoeba in your soil, you'll have problems growing clover. That I, I tried cross-referencing, trying to figure out what that meant. And uh, yeah, I, I haven't got very far, but basically I think it just goes back to this, the, this soil biology. It doesn't have the signal to grow. And how do we change it? Is it the fungal bacteria? Is it, well, okay, with amoebas, that's a predator. What do we have to do? What do I have to change? And, and you know, building fungi, fungi is going to be part of it. So cattle action on the land may have helped over the years. I can maybe try it again. I'm just wondering about all these annuals I'm going to try, uh, annual clovers. I'm going to seed before I seed my corn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when, I'm, when I do up a, a saline blend, I like throwing a little bit of phacelia into the mix. It's not because phacelia is an awesome plant for salinity. It's my marker. So that where phacelia is growing, the, the salinity is down to a point where it's manageable, but I can really easily see where the phacelia is. So to throw in a little bit of these clovers in with a mix, you get a really good indication of where we are biologically in that soil so to put it in is it wasted well if you put too much of it or you know you put in something that's you know really expensive yeah it may be better better to spend money elsewhere but you had to put some in and and uh yeah the fuel bioassay i think is the the magical word that uh, that most researchers would use so facilia has been one of my major uh, crops that I've added to my eight to 12 crops, uh, polycrops. And so every year we've used facilia. Um, we've had a good catch with that. And uh, so you think it'll be okay if we, like we're going to seed um, about five pounds of three or four annual clovers. You think we'll be okay with that? And then seed the corn right after? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, when, when people tell you that when you're seeding corn, it has to be clean. They're absolutely right. When you're dealing with a plant that is growing faster than the corn and is using up nutrients. When you look at legumes, once again, when you, when you start talking about a early 
ecology stage plant. That plant is there and with, with legumes, they need a grass. So it's not going to try and choke out that thing it needs. It needs to grow with that grass because that legume is fixing nitrogen and it needs lots of phosphate. A grass is going to accumulate phosphate and it needs nitrogen. So with that mycorrhizae, it's going to link those two plants together and it's going to be sharing that phosphate to the legume so it fixes nitrogen for the grass plant. Whereas if you seeded oats with that corn crop, now you're dealing with similar plant groups, uh, functional groups, and they're going to be competing with each other. You throw in radishes in there, or turnips, those are scavengers. They're going to take nutrients away from that corn. So we have to work on synergies, not antagonisms. Okay, thanks, Kevin. I'm looking forward to trying it this year. <laughs> nothing, nothing but fear holding you back. <laughs> and, and dollars. <laughs> well, yeah, it's always oh, Steve, dollars. <laughs> Steve has some for you if you need some. Sure, I'll check my piggy bank behind me here. I don't think he holds much money. <laughs> he protects it though. My my money's in right behind it. Oh, so. is that what it is? Yeah, my pocket change goes in that cupboard. Next up, we have Kenley, and Kenley's one of our neighbors and I and friends, and um, just love their family. We actually did a YouTube video through Grow on them, so I'll put the YouTube channel in there, and there's a bunch of videos on there. But Kenley, are you ready to go? I saw his beard all frosty earlier today in a picture. So <laughs> maybe he froze. I hope he didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not with that beard. He, he can stay warm with that beard. That's true. I think his wife was jealous. That's why she posted it. She's quite jealous of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hi, Kenley. How's it going? Good. I'm having trouble with the video. No problem. We'll see what happens. But uh, oh, that is a beard there. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks i forgot to ask kind of the or the first clarification on my question there was what would you plant for a ca cash crop and then to have a with a cover crop for kind of a first timer uh but i guess the main goal would actually be able to sh to show that you can do this here where i'm in an area where regenerative egg cover cropping is not uh not 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 taking any roots yet <laughs> <laughs> i like the phrase <laughs> kenley if you're not being talked about at the coffee shop you got to step up your game a little bit okay well the coffee shops aren't supposed to be open right now steve <laughs> i'm pretty sure i'm already being talked about there so I'm, I'm the guy with the electric fence posts and within about 10, 12, 15 miles, probably. So what would you plant as a, for a cash crop and have, and with the cover crop to, to have grazing done on it for like winter grazing. Uh, but with the actual goal being to show that you can do this in this area or in your oh. area. What is the cash crop you're growing? What do you want it to be? Well, what do you want it to be? It's, it's your farm. This <laughs> is, this is the neat thing with what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, this is the neat thing. I don't have the combine, so I can just tell the neighbor this is what we'll put in and I'll rent the combine from them. Oh, okay. So if you want to grow oats, if you want to keep it simple, uh, throw keep in it simple some... so that we can do it. Well, exactly. Uh, Italian ryegrass. Uh, a pound yep. of Italian ryegrass is going to give you about four seeds per square foot. Um, you know, bingo, bango, there's, there's your grazing underneath. If you want to get a little fancier, throw in some Persian clover. And now you have your, your nitrogen source for your oats and your, your Italian ryegrass. 
Did you seed that all at the same time? Seed it all at the same time. And if you're going to spray it, you can use uh, bromoxanol and you're off to the races. Cool. Nice and simple. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the whole thing with these, these cover crops, we can make it really complex or we can keep it simple and effective and simple effective really works well. Then when we go to the next level, okay, so you get, you want to prove that it works. Okay. There's something simple that'll, that'll work. Now we can go to the next step. Now we can go to the Steve level, <laughs> get the diversity really cranking. So, yeah, my, my addition to that would be, um, I, I think a couple of years ago, Gabe Brown actually talked about this, and I can't remember where the study was from. I'd have to look back on it and figure that out. But there was a study where they found that there was a, a jump in biology after you got seven different types of root systems in the soil. Right. So if you're looking at the graph, there was a, a jump once you got over seven. And then there was another bump in biology after you got to 16 different types of root systems. The idea behind that, getting all that, the root systems in there gets you more biology, which gets you the free fertility. So from my opinion of that, with only three different species, you're not going to get a whole bunch of that, you know, free fertility because you're not getting a polyculture of, of uh, biology underneath there. So I would like to try and get more low growing, right? That first question we had here tonight about how many different types of, of low growing species can you get? So I would say I would, I'd be adding white clover. I'd be adding the plantain, um, maybe even a little bit of, um, some some lower growing vetches or something uh, that's going to stay below where your oats go. Um, but yeah, the the more variety I'd get underneath there, I think the the more fertility you're going to get out of that, and the better the crop's going to look. So it, it will, but for the first go around, I don't like confusing people. I like keeping yeah, them nice and simple. So you want to have the fall grazing? Okay, let's just you know the the simple button is there. Um, to, to when when you do get. You know, okay, so you graze it and it's it worked out well. How do we get to the next level? Okay, so this is where now do you want to overwinter? Now, you know, your goals are going to become more specific. If your goal was just for fall grazing, okay, that's what angle I would go with. If you want to do the fall grazing plus have stuff over winter, now we'll throw some fasciolium or perennial ryegrass. We'll throw in some and, and you know this is the neat thing there's you know what 80 different species we have access to functional different functional plant groups you know it's basically you know where's your pain tolerance i have uh customers that are at uh two dollars an acre of what they spend on cover crop seed and i have people at 75 and which one's right they're both right it's what is your goal? What are your, what's your budget? What are your, the big picture stuff? Um, I'm just here as a tour guide. And so when people come to me and they say, what, what's the best, what do you want to get done? Well, Kevin, don't tell Ken Lee this, but what I do is I go to the seed uh, dealers and ask them what they have for old stock or broken bags. Yep. And lots of times I get them for free, but don't <laughs> tell Ken Lee because he's my neighbor and he's going to go in and get them before I do. So this is the joys of, of operating a seed retail is and having the farm is, you know, if someone uh, canceled an order, so we did a custom blend and someone canceled, guess what? That goes into my blend. If we have broken bags, it goes into my blend. If I'm short half a bag, it doesn't go in. If I have an extra half a bag, it goes in. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, especially when you get to the level where you have your soils functioning and you want this diversity, like I said, to have 12 species in a mix, yeah, that's nothing. And, and once again, to say that you used oats, barley, and wheat, 
that's not three different species. That's one functional plant group. You're same dealing root with system. Same root system. Feel free to share some of that love, Kevin. If, if you have extra seeds, you know, feel free to send them over our way. I'll meet you part way again. See, now we got a courier service. <laughs> See, Kenley will pick up some seeds while I'm at it too. <laughs> That's good. So next up would be Sheldon. Can an air seeder be used for cover crops or what is needed for seed placement? I guess that would depend on the the context too. As a perennial, you know, if I'm trying to establish a perennial, I've had the best luck with broadcast and trample. But if we're, you know, going into a cash crop and you need even maturity, um, yeah, definitely you're going to need some, you know, better way to seed it in there. So uh, go ahead, Kevin, what do you got for that one? Like for me... Um, people were asking why did I why was I using such an old air seeder? If I bought a brand new high tech uh, disc drill and I was out there seeding doing my thing, people would say, "Well, I can't because I don't I can't afford a big brand new machine." Well, guess what? I can't either. So I was using a 1986 Borgo air seeder. Guess what? It works. You have to know the limitation of your machine and moisture. So when you are up in up in in God's country in in the Westlock Barhead area, broadcasting, you're seeding to moisture, so it works perfectly. You move down to Oyen, broadcasting, gonna be more missed than hit. So it's gonna go back to what's your moisture, what's the forecast, uh, what kind of stubble, what kind of armor do you have? Do you have you know all of those different things? When I was using a, a an air seeder, one of the things I found is when I went from a, a a shovel or a spoon and I went to a hole opener, things just got that much easier. So the the hole opener for the burgo just is a straight up and down, uh, basically clip that goes on the shank, C shank, and you know I was seeding. If you go to the the Cover Crops Canada uh, YouTube page, you can see some of the videos on there. And I was seeding through Japanese millet that was as high as the duels on our eighty one hundred. John Deere tractor didn't plug once, but I had a living root and I had that hole opener. So it's going straight up and down versus if it was pointing forward with a shank, you know, like a shovel, everything would wrap on it and you would end up with a haircut like me. So knowing that joke the doesn't work as good when you're not on video there, Kevin, <laughs> uh, but I think most people know me. So, <laughs> or, or see my bald head anyways. Um, so it, it's knowing the limitations of your machine. And so if you do have a disc drill, guess what? You have more options. So it's knowing what your machine can do. So if you can, uh, and, and if the moisture is good, have at it. If it's dry, seed to soil is going to give you the, your, your best emergence out of your, out of your, your seeds. I've actually used a disc, uh, zero till disc drill a couple of times now. And uh, both times, or uh, I think three times I've done it now, two of the times anyway, um, they both failed anyway. One, because we had a severe drought. It worked really good. We, we seeded in, we had all these little seedlings germinate. I purposely overgrazed the pasture, trying to knock it down to get that to kick in. And it worked great. I was very impressed with it. And then we got zero rain for the next two months and all those little yellow or all those little seedlings uh, died off, yellowed off and died. Um, the other time I did it, we went in, seeded in, waited for moisture. We seeded in nice. This disc drill just cuts in so nice and it puts this perfect in there. And then we flooded for the whole season. Like we were grazing through 11 inches of water. So yeah, that didn't work either. So if, if you can time it, you tell me what year you're going to get the perfect weather, and then I'll tell you which year it's going to work good. Okay, so yeah, that's my my tip. 
and your and your forecast is for this next com- next year is going to be <laughs> COVID. COVID. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the last one we were in uh, in what 1918, the pandemic that went through lasted four years. So uh, we're only in year one of this one. And that okay, good, can... good news is brought to you by Steve Kenyon. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Jesse, are you ready to go? You have a couple of really good questions here, so I'm hoping you are. Hey, I think so, yeah. Hey, let me just uh, swap back to the chat here so I can read this. But I went on some field tours this summer. Some of the questions we had were uh, rejuvenating some worn-out pastures. And a few people had good luck uh, on old, worn-out, tired pasture. They sprayed them out and direct-seeded in annuals, like oats or oat barley mixes or some more complicated ones <clears throat> right after the herbicide and that year the annuals came in very strong um just wondering what's the reason that the annuals can come in and do that i mean <clears throat> no additional uh, nutrition was added so why can't those established perennials access that same nutrition like what's what's going on there and why does that disruption make a difference Okay, so when we have introducing a, a an annual into a tired pasture, and when I say tired, one of the, the things that you'll find is going back to this fungal bacteria ratio is now that fungal bacteria ratio is now over the, that one-to-one. So there's more fungi in that soil than bacteria. Bacteria are important in that system because the bacteria will break down and cycle nutrients a lot quicker than what fungi will ever do that. So in, in that tired pasture, basically we have the lack of bacteria. So when we've sprayed it out, when you spray it, uh, most of the herbicides will, will cause an increase in the bacteria load in that soil. When we go and seed it, whether it's a distrill, whether it's a hole opener, whether it's shovels or whatever, that's gonna, once again, hurt the, the fungal and promote more bacteria. Then when we put that, annual grain in there now we have a plant that is going to have an active root it's in the vegetative stage so it's going to release a whole bunch of root exudates into that soil it's going to feed the biology now we've got it going so if you listen to to gay brown when he talks about rejuvenating pastures when he, he says go in there and you know and you know seed seed an annual into your into your pasture graze it off then seed a winter annual into that that stand after you graze it off have it over winter graze it off and then seed a warm season mix into it now we have three sets of of plants that are in the vegetative stage with increased diversity that's now feeding that soil when we have these tired pastures normally they're tired because of we've abused them somewhat whether it's overgrazed under rested uh, over rested whatever those issues are so that this way when we put fresh food a microbe food in there in in the case of, of root exudates now we have plants that are willing to grow so to add to that, when you spray that out, what we're doing is we're, we're, you know, having the root systems die, which I think, like you said there, Kevin, the bacterial percentage goes up. We release, we're releasing nutrients, right? As your, as your pasture's establishing, your perennials establish, we, um, I think the term we've used before is that the nutrients gets bound up in the soil. Uh, to me, that's a good thing. We're, we're storing nutrients, we're building our soil. But then when we spray it out, all of a sudden the bacteria increase and they start, you know, 
eating all that and they're releasing nutrients. So that's when you, you know, you rip up your pasture after and you've got a couple of good years of oats and barley to put in there because they're, they're harvesting all that nutrients that we have, you know, bound up in our soil for, from the pasture. So to me, it's actually a bad thing because we're, you know, we're releasing nutrients. You're, you're mining your soil quicker that way. Um, whereas if I get a, a wore out pasture that I take over, uh, the last thing I'm going to do is spray it out and rip it up. Um, for me, uh, I want to, uh, hold on to the water holding capacity and rejuvenate the whole thing. So animal integration and proper grazing management is the most important part, right? If you just add some seeds, you spray it out and add some seeds to it. If you're not going to change your management, you're not, you're not going to get ahead. You're not going to, you know, it's going to go back to the same system you were previously, if you don't change your grazing management. Uh, my most reliable way of rejuvenating a pasture, I've come in and tried to zero till in and I've broadcast and I've done lots of things. And I always come back to, you know, I do those experiments and, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, but leaving a pasture, letting it go to seed, uh, I guess it's def called deferred grazing. Um, let that plant material grow up. Maybe I'll graze it once during the season, but then let it grow and then let it mature. I get seeds added to the seed bank. I get extra residue left on top that I can stomp down. Um, it, it can change the fungal to bacteria ratio by stomping down either, you know, dead plant material or green plant material. In this case, I'm stomping down dead plant material. And the next year, I'm way farther ahead. Right. That's in my environment. Um, water is a very important nutrient that I need to manage. Um, and the drier you are, the more important that is. So trying to build that soil armor to hold on to water is usually my number one requirement. And uh, if I can add some seeds to the seed bank, too, that's great. Now, that first year when I'm doing that, I don't get a lot of cash flow out of it. Right. I'm, I'm actually skipping a grazing. So we, uh, we we let that get mature on me. But you know, on the second year and the third year, I get that much more growth out of that because of it. So, so I think that's key. And I think that's what, um, Kevin mentioned earlier. And, you know, we've, we've had these talks about, um, when it comes to fertilizers or anything like that, I think the key is to use cover crops as a management tool, not necessarily the quick fix. I, I think that's where cover crops really come into play is to give it that chance to really get jumping and then to be able to move forward with it in the next little bit so that you can get some money out of maybe a little faster than you might if you were to just, you know, use a, a laid back rejuvenating method. It's bridge. Next up, we had Ed. Ed, are you there? Hey, guys. Ed, Ed Hummel here from Astrid, Manitoba. And uh, the question I have, and maybe Kevin uh, can answer it, but the cost of what the seeding is, is getting to, like some of these companies have different coatings. Some of these companies are selling uh, pre-mixed blends. Um, what is your best bang for your buck? Uh, millets, there's quite a price range between millets and clovers and all kinds of different uh, seeds. Um, what What is the best bang for your buck and how do you, how do you figure out where to go with that? So, so I guess what is your goal, I guess, is the, the first thing. So when you're looking for species, what what's your what are you trying to get at? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm just talking in, in general terms of if I want to grow a millet, there, there's 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 maybe a dollar to a dollar fifty sometimes a pound in, in different millet prices. Is is one millet going to be better than another millet or one, you know, one clover if I'm growing it for silage or something? You know, am I better to, to go cheap and buy something local or? or go to Union Forage or some of these, these cover crop companies and spend $70 an acre. 
well, that's that's the reason why, you know, for myself, uh, when when I started up the the Cover Crops Canada, I was doing it because number one, there wasn't good information out there. Uh, number two, when we did uh, join or partner with with uh, Imperial Seeds, one of the things that I told Kurt, uh, Kurt Schmann, the owner, I said, this will work as long as he doesn't, you know, take the price and increase it by 50%. When, when you're looking for best bang for the buck and you look at uh, something like, uh, like a white proso millet, crown millet. So it's at 99 cents and Japanese millet is say 250. You say, okay, so two and a half times the money. So is it worth it? Well, when you look at the seeding rate, of that crown millet versus Japanese millet, you're looking at half the, you know, half the seeding rate that you need for the Japanese and as what you need for the proso. So the cost per acre is now fairly close. When you look at the end use, so if you want to cut it and graze it, proso millet's not going to regrow after you cut it, whereas Japanese will. And this is when, you know, for myself, what I what I was doing when I was when I, you know looking at at cutting my my cover crops for grain feed so I can see the winter triticale into it, I would do a mixture of the two of them. So I'd have some of the, the cheap stuff. So this way I needed something to lignify, but yet I wanted that some of that millet to regrow to keep pushing root exudates into that soil. So this is the reason why in my book, I have that calculation of how many seeds per square foot per pound of seed. So that this way, uh, I've, the other thing I've done is when I'm creating blends for people, I have a, uh, a spreadsheet that I use. It's a, I use Mac computers, so it's in numbers. And it figures out the number of seeds per square foot and the dollars per acre of that ingredient. So when you look at something like carry vetch and you look at, uh, you know, to get one seed per square foot, you need three pounds. And at three bucks a pound, it's going to cost you $9 for that one seed. Whereas you look at something like chicory, where uh, quick numbers say it's nine bucks a pound. It's a little cheaper than that, but but you're also getting nine seeds per per square foot per pound of seed you're putting down. So it's only costing a dollar for that one seed. Whereas for the 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 hairy bet, you're getting nine. Where's the bang for the buck? Well, this is part of the the process that we go through of of setting goals. So if you're needing something, uh, a, a legume that's going to overwinter, okay, well, here's the species we can use. What's the cost per seed per square foot? Where's the bang for the buck? Does it match your goals of what you're trying to do? So the other thing that one of the other reasons why I, I partnered with Imperial is because they do custom blends. They were willing to do blends so that it would match what your goals are. So they, you know, they have a listing of uh, eight different blends that you can pick from, but you can say, I like that one, but let's take this out. Let's put that in. And with a smile, Jimmy is in the back doing your blend for you. So it's, it works really good that way. Kevin, can I make a comment without insulting you completely with this? Oh, one? you can never insult me. <laughs> I might be able to. Um, so honestly, if you were to go to a car dealership, right? There's some car salesmen that are very like they're pushing <laughs> and the, you can tell they just want the money that's coming off the top. Um, and then there's some car salesmen that are really down to earth and are actually going to try to look for your best interest. I think that would be the best thing to look for in a seed salesman too. <laughs> 
is that person who's actually looking for your best interest and wants to see you get ahead rather than necessarily wants to make just that commission off the top and yeah. not have to worry yeah. about anything else. So exactly. which one's Kevin? <laughs> no, that I, I so agree. Uh, well, good point, Amber. Uh, the reason that I had that reputation of not liking cover crops before is because when this came out probably five years ago, every seed salesman was pushing cover crops. And I had so many people coming up to me saying, oh, yeah, this guy told me I should rip out my pasture and I should put in this cover crop. I'm like, what? No, you change your management. There's nothing better than a perennial polyculture for building soil. If your destination is to be a, a pasture, then we need to improve the management, right? Ripping it out and putting in a cover crop is just, you know, money wasted if it's going to be a pasture. Now, if you're going to, you know, put a cover crop into it and go into a cropping in, you know, system, okay, a cover crop's a good tool. But there was so many seed salesmen who were just pushing and pushing and pushing because they could make a buck out of it. So be careful who you're listening to is my, my, my concern. Yeah, um, that really goes for any salesman when it comes down. To but I like Kevin. I do like Kevin. I like Kevin too. Okay, so when are you gonna insult me? <laughs> well, comparing you to a car salesman might have been insulting for a lot of yeah, people. No, I, you, you missed it. Try again. <laughs> okay, I'll try harder next time. <laughs> next up, uh, we have Lee's iPhone. Are you ready? I am, except the, the video is off. I got my mic on. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. That's hey guys, it's uh, Lee Finstead here. Um, just a question on. Uh, uh, I, I'm going to call these seeding uh, a cover crop. Uh, I'm talking early July. I've got uh, fall rye seeded into our stubble. I'm going to use it for grazing this spring. And uh, if it all works like we did last year, I, I was able to get a green feed crop off it. But I just don't like that uh, exposed soil from, you know, July through to next spring. So I'm looking to uh, put a blend down. Uh, weather permitting, if we get a bit of moisture down in this corner of the world. And uh, um, is it possible in, in mid-July? Am I getting too late? And uh, what would you recommend post I uh, get the bales off from green feeding the rye? If you've known me... <laughs> and heard my talks i hate fall you rye. Hate rye i know you do <laughs> you told me that exactly <laughs> the allelopathy it it causes issues and then when you put dry over top of it um you know the allelopathy in rye occurs in two stages you have the the root exudates when the, the rye is small in the vegetative stage the allelopathy is in the root exudates going into the soil so then that's going to cause issues of anything trying to grow into that as a cover crop so if it's established before it's not a problem it's below the allelopathy it's not an issue but if it's getting caught and it's trying to grow in this allelopathy you're frying it then when the plant the rye plant goes into reproductive stage so you get stem elongation so your root exudates change so in the past i used to say they used to be reduced but listening to dr nichols uh she said they be the the root exudates when the plant starts to mature they become more resilient and harder to break down because it's, it's once again I, my my theory was was close but you know the, the root exudates are there but the root exudates that when the plant's maturing aren't for the microbes at that time it's for the next crop which i thought was cool when so as the the, the root exudates change that allelopathy then gets caught up in the stem 
of that right plant. So when that right plant, if you're going to combine it and it's laying on the surface and that, that straw starts rotting, it re-releases the allelopathy. So by bailing it, in case you're going to take out a lot of that allelopathy issue, which, you know, that's going to help, but you're still going to have some in the soil. And so when the strategy would be, once again, assuming, you know, assuming the you're going to have straight line rotting, if that's possible. Uh, but what will happen is the, the allelopathy will naturally break down in that soil after you, you take that rye crop off. So you may have to wait a little bit, uh, but you can then seed, I would go with larger seeded species. So using some oats, some sunflowers, things like that, that we can sink down a little bit deeper. Uh, number two, that may be getting closer to the moisture, if, if you have moisture that time of year, and, uh, and go with that route. But, you know, big seeds, seed them a little deeper, and you want to wait, uh, you know, some time after you take that dry off. And if it turns out that, you know, you're super dry, and then you get a rain, well, that's when that that rye residue is going to rot and it's going to release that allelopathy. So then there's that window that you may get caught later on, but I hate rye. <laughs> um, yeah, there's opportunities. I like oats. They're cheap. Um, out of all of the spring cereals, they're going to release some of the most uh, of, of the, the uh, uh, root exates in the soil. And they will stay green after a few frosts. Okay, good. Yeah, I was sunflower just looking at i was using that smart mix calculator on uh green cover seed mm -hmm. and i i think i like the idea of waiting a bit that fits perfectly in our plan because a lot of times we don't once i get the stuff bailed up it's not it's not pulled off the fields essentially it's still sitting there until we get the trucks over there mm -hmm. um but uh just wait a bit is there anything else to add uh, other than uh, like you say sunflower or oats just because we primarily our cover our cash crop is either oats or barley for our own feed use is there any other plants that would uh, be a benefit to be putting in for the roots to the soil there's a lot of opportunities but if you if you miss that that allelopathy so if it's dry and and you uh, like if you look at the turnips the radishes um things like that you're dealing with a small seed and the small yeah. seeds are going to be more susceptible to allelopathy and so that's where yeah like if you can wait if you're on irrigation for instance and you take the bales off you give a, you know an inch of water you wait for two weeks and then you go seed then you're probably going to be fine well you know listening to um, to abby wick down at north dakota state university um you know, when they got into using fall rye as their cover uh, between soy and, and corn in, in North Dakota, you know, they, they were finding that, you know, it was at 75% of the time, they were getting a yield penalty from having that fall rye over winter and seeding corn into it. And, you know, by accident, if, if that's the right word, uh, someone one day went out sprayed their fall rye in the spring and got caught and they waited two weeks then they seeded their corn they saw a yield bump and this is where you know that two weeks allowed that little path to to reduce the levels so they seeded the corn into it they still had the, the the weed control in the top part of the soil but they allowed the corn to to get established properly and take off. So then when people started using that, then it flipped 80% of the time they saw a yield increase. So it's these little tricks with fall rye that it can work, but it, it can cause some issues also. So it's, it's just, yeah. 
it'd be nice if there was a test that you could put in the soil and say, yeah, the allelopathy is gone, give her. And now you can use flax, you can use uh, uh, some turnips, some hybrid brassicas, some, you know, open up the playbook. But if you want to reduce the risk, stick with the bigger seeds that we can seed a little bit deeper to make sure we're, we're away from the allelopathy. Good, good to know. Thanks. Um, just to clarify on that too, just to, to add to that, um, uh, maybe some people don't know what the allelopath is. Uh, in fall rye, an allelopath is it releases a chemical into the soil while it grows, uh, very similar to, uh, I was told, 2,4-D. So it'll kill off broadleaf plants. Um, other plants can do that as well. Crack, quackgrass is an allelopath, but it actually releases a chemical as the dead plant material breaks down. So an allelopath uh, from fall rye, you, you wouldn't want to seed, you know, any broadleaf weeds with it or, and I, I was told that it lasts, you know, usually about a one year residual. So two years later, you'd be safe to seed just about anything, but um, that allelopath can, can uh, definitely hurt your, your broadleafs. Um, the other thing I would add is the, the one comment you made at the beginning of the question, uh, Lee, um, about how you're removing the bales from there. Um, just a bit of a challenge to you. Is there any way that you can grow your crop and and deal with that without exporting nutrients? Right. Just a bit of a challenge to you. How can you try and recycle nutrients? Because that's one of my principles in my management is is trying to get those nutrients to stay on my land. Um, maybe it's not possible in your situation, but just uh, uh, just a bit of a challenge to you. That's all. It was interesting to note that uh, this is the first year we used it as a grazing tool. Like you know we. Uh, and uh, the cattle coming off uh, during, you know, mid to late calving season, they actually hit that rye and uh, really grazed that and actually avoided the, or just left the native pasture alone so it could have a chance to grow. So I saw a real big benefit for that. And uh, yeah, I agree. If I can have some way to keep it on, but uh, the cows are eating those bales right now. It's minus 45 with the wind chill out here. And they quite like that ride this time of year. Thanks for your answers, guys. You bet. And Thanks, Lee. One of the I reasons be- one of the reasons why the, the animals went after that fall rye is because in the vegetative stage, it's going to have higher sugar. So your bricks levels are going to be higher. So it's going to be a lot more attractive to those animals versus the, the native pastures. I'm actually really excited and it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit off topic, but we're doing some trials on Kernza and Kernza is very, you know, it's fairly well known in the States, um, still coming to Canada, but it's going to be really interesting to see how that does with grazing because it's a perennial wheat plant. And so you'd be able to take the seed for wheat and they're actually using it for bread and beer and and things like that, but you might be able to graze it as well. And I, I think that's really exciting coming up. Um, we have Kelvin up. Are you ready to go? And this might be their last question for the night, guys. Time's gone by really, really fast. Okay, my question is, when you're doing a cover crop, how do you establish how many head you need to graze on it to manage the crop properly? That's always a tough one. It depends on what the production's going to be. And again, that comes down to, to guessing and what your context is, what we're, you know, is it part of your rotation? Is it one field in a, in a larger pasture? In that case, that's ideal because then I can, um, I have some flexibility. Um, whereas if you're just seeding a, a, a cover crop and you've got the whole herd on that piece, that's a whole nother story. Um, 
and that's going to take some experience from your area. Um, what's what's normal in your area? Uh, how much production you're going to get? Did you put fertilizer with it or not? Or not? Um, there's another topic we haven't even hit hit today. Um, so yeah, that's that's a, a very unique s- situation to your farm in your area of you know how much rainfall do you get? Normally, do you get uh, 15 inches of rainfall in a year, or do you get six? I mean, obviously your stocking rate is going to be a lot higher. So um, I'm going to revert back to that's a really hard question to to answer unless we know where you're, you know, your environment specifically. Okay, for my environment, on average, we might get about five inches of rain a year. So I'm trying to figure out for grazing and all this stuff, how many acres to justify to seed for 200 and some cows. So my first answer would be for grazing in the summertime, I want a perennial pasture, right? It's, it's, uh, that's my, my ultimate go-to in my operation. Now you're in a different situation. So I, I don't even know how to answer that one because I think a, you know, planting an annual crop for, for my, for grazing livestock, that to me is a fall or winter issue. Right. My perennials, if I take animals off my summer pasture to go graze an annual, well, then my perennials are going to get ahead on me. Uh, they're going to get mature and they're, I'm not going to be able to manage them properly. So I never try and put in an annual in the middle of my summer. Um, just my operation, my, my situation. Anything that I'm seeding as a crop that I'm in, it's for fall grazing or, or, or later on. Um, or unless it's a part of my pasture that's going to turn into perennial then I might throw it in there just to knock it down, but it's going to be part of my perennial later. So um, I, I don't do anything just on the annual basis. If I get a piece of land, a crop land that I, you know, I get to rent it, it all goes into perennial pastures because there's nothing better for the soil than a, a polyculture of perennials. Well-managed. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a few variables on there and you know, the, one of the, the ways uh, that you can do some estimates is you know what would uh, number one what are you going to compare it to so if you normally do some green feed oats and you know normally you get uh, 3,000 pounds of, of uh, production off of an acre that would be a, you know a decent starting point and then once again what species are you going to use if uh, you're going to be using uh, uh, you know a lot of, of brassicas your brassica is going to be 80 percent moisture so you know they're going to look real good but when they dry down there isn't very much left there uh, and you know the, the grazing aspect you know your grasses are going to be things that are going to you know drive the ship so you have to make sure you have your grasses or you have to have your legumes uh, you know a fairly well designed plant so, you know, if, uh, if on five inches of rain, you know, average, uh, if you're getting, uh, you know, uh, it kind of goes back to what Steve said, go with your experience saying normally we get uh, 40 grazing days an acre out of something like this, that would be your starting points. And then from there, if you have too much, that's a good thing. If you don't have enough, okay, do you supplement or do you move them quicker? There's, uh, yeah, you're just really going to have to go through, through the year and, and manage Sorry, no sleep, no easy answer. That's a tough one to, to answer because our environments are so different. I mean, six inches of rain uh, versus 22 inches of rain, there's a, a completely different um, stocking rate for that. Uh, a lot of people always ask me, well, how big do I make my paddocks or how many cows do we put on the, on the land? I mean, in a grazing situation, um, I always say the number of paddocks is more important than the size of them. 
Okay, because it depends on your environment. It depends on the the uh, production of the land. Um, you know, uh, the number of paddocks in a bush field. You, you know, I, I don't need to make my bush paddocks very small because they don't produce very much, so they're a lot bigger. Whereas I have a really high producing part of my land, um, it's going to have smaller paddocks because it produces more. So ideally, I'd like to balance out the number of grazing days, not necessarily a number of acres. So um, our stock density all relates to that, the whole size of the pasture more than, uh, um, you know, the, the area that we're in. Like it doesn't, I don't measure things by acres. It's by grazing days more than anything. So stock density is different in every environment. That's all. Okay, thank you very much for everybody for coming tonight. Again, we're gonna we're gonna officially shut it down tonight, but uh, don't doesn't mean we're kicking you off of here. Um, we're gonna leave this open for the after networking networking because this was a networking session, but we're gonna continue it on. Uh, we're gonna leave it open. If there was somebody you know made an interesting comment, by all means, chit chat with them. Um, Kevin, you're welcome to stay on as long as you can, but if you know at any time you need to leave, let us know. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so much. That's why Kevin's my nerd, everybody. He's my cover crop nerd. He's uh, done a fantastic job here tonight. And thank you very much for everybody. Uh, thanks to the Gateway Research Organization for sponsoring. And uh, God bless everybody.